This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss risk adjustment, specifically Medicare Advantage risk adjustment. With me to discuss the topic is Robert Book, the Senior Research Director at Health Systems Innovation Network. Robert, thank you for your time. Glad to be here. Mr. Book's bio is posted on the podcast website, and to note, his comments are his own. For context or in background, Medicare Advantage plans are run by private health insurance companies, typically with whom the federal government contracts provide Medicare-covered services. MA plans today provide care to 16 million or approximately one-third of all Medicare beneficiaries. MA plans are paid a capitated per-member-per-month fee based on historical costs calculated at the county level. For more on how plans are paid, please listen to my May 6, 2013 interview with Dr. Brian Biles. These payments are then risk-adjusted are multiplied by a risk adjustment factor to reflect the covered beneficiaries' diagnosed conditions and their demographic data. With me again to discuss MA risk adjustment is Robert Book. So Robert, let's start with a theory. What in theory does risk adjustment attempt to accomplish? So the idea behind risk adjustment is that if you have a, um, each patient has an average cost, and you could average over the entire population, or you could, and, and that would give you an estimate of the patient's cost, but if you're the uh, MA plan, you might think, hey, you know, sometimes I can tell who's the average patient and who's gonna be the patient with above average costs or below average costs. And you might want to do something to differentially attract patients with below average costs. Now, if you're an MA plan, you're required by law to accept any patient who signs up, any Medicare beneficiary who signs up as long as they live within your service area. So you're not allowed to discriminate against people who you think might be high cost, but you could market in any way you want. You could advertise at the gym. You could, uh, you know, structure your copays and deductibles to see to be more favorable to people who are healthier. And you could end up if you just collected the a payment based on the average cost of treating anybody, you could end up being overpaid for the people who actually choose to enroll. Now, when they first started the MA plan program, they did see some of that coming, and they adjusted payments based on the patient's age, gender, and residential location. Why residential location? Because costs of healthcare vary from region to region, so if a person lives in a high-cost area, they'll have higher-cost healthcare, even for factors that have nothing to do with them personally. Obviously, in general, older people tend to incur higher healthcare costs, and the rate of increase is different for gender. So uh, this is easy because Medicare knows the age and gender and residence of, of everybody involved, but it still allows enough room for MA plans to uh, di try to differentially attract healthy patients. So uh, what they did was they, they decided to add, an, this is the way risk adjustment was done for the first uh, six or seven years of the MA, pro MA program. And uh, MA plans made a lot more money than expected and tended to enroll healthier patients than the average MA plan. And also MA patients tended to uh, 
drop MA when they got sick. Now, this was obviously not a marketing issue, but you, if you structure your copays and your deductibles and your network in a way that looks really good for a, a healthy patient, that might not look so good for a sick patient. Mm -hmm. Patients are smart enough to figure that out. At least enough of them are to matter. So, uh, so what they did is they added an extra risk adjustment where instead of just adjusting based on demographics, demographic factors, your age, your gender, your residence, they uh, would also adjust based on diagnosed conditions in the previous year. So every Medicare claim for a in the fee-for-service system gets not just you know the service provided, but also physicians are supposed to report a diagnosis code. And CMS can aggregate the diagnosis codes for a given patient for all the claims submitted that, that year and put that into a what they call an HCC model, hierarchical condition categories, and come out with a bunch of disease categories that can be assigned to that patient. And then, once they've got that information, they can figure out how much each diagnosis code increases the average patient's cost, just averaging in the patients with that diagnosis code. So the average patient with you know, type 2 diabetes costs this much more than the average patient without it. The average patient with a certain level of a, you know, with a past heart attack might have higher and there's a there's about 70 or so categories. There's 79. 79 categories. And if you're the mean, you're at 1.0. But right. if you have a disease condition, maybe the multiplier is 1.2. Right. So the, 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 um, they, they assign a multiplier to each of these condition categories such that the average patient has an average of 1. That's called the risk score. Mm -hmm. Patients who are healthier than average have a score below 1. Right. Patients higher than average have a score above 1. In general, in most cases, they just add up the risk scores for each category, condition category that a person is assigned to. There are a couple of categories with interaction terms, but mostly they just add them up, and that's a given patient's risk score. If that patient enrolls in an MA plan, they take the, the payment that the MA plan would have gotten and multiply it by that patient's risk score, and that's how much the plan is paid. So if you get a healthier patient, you might be paid less than the usual amount. If you have a less healthy patient, a patient with a lot of diagnosed conditions, you might get paid more, which reflects the fact that the MA plan is going to have to pay more to properly take care of a patient who's got a bunch of conditions. Now, the, uh, the amount the patient pays doesn't change. The patient pays the standard Part B premium, and if they select an MA plan that has an additional premium, they pay the same additional premium as anybody else. This only affects how much the government pays to the MA plan. So if a plan continues to try to attract healthier uh, enrollees, they'll get paid less, reflecting the fact that on average they'll have to pay less to take care of those enrollees. So the idea is to not to incent them one way or another. Right, and actually uh, they, they apparently did a fairly good job of this because studies after this plan, this was implemented in 2007 seemed to indicate that this uh, gaming in the system, that this differential attraction of healthy enrollees didn't seem to be occurring anymore. Okay, so we just discussed the theory and then actually how patient risk adjustment is calculated. So let's go to the paper you wrote or authored recently for the American Action Forum. Uh, this is a primer paper, so titled, uh, again, published earlier this year. And you noted this phenomenon called MA upcoding. This is the much-discussed issue. You actually say it's a, it's a misnomer, but what is upcoding in context of what we just discussed? So, uh, as I noted earlier, the, they get the diagnosis codes from uh, 
Part B from, from regular fee-for-service claims. Now, a, a provider billing for fee-for-service has to put down a diagnosis code that matches the service they're billing for. They might not note every diagnosis code that a given patient has. It's not relevant, and they're not paid for the diagnosis code. In the fee-for-service system, they are paid for the service they perform, regardless of whether or not there's a diagnosis code. Now, they have to put down the diagnosis code. If they put the correct one, it might be useful if they get audited, but there's no incentive to put down every diagnosis the patient has, and certainly no incentive to add extra diagnoses. Under fee-for-service. Under fee-for-service, right. And the risk scores are calculated based on fee-for-service, and uh, that's actually the right way to do it. We can talk about that later if you like. Now, in the MA plan, it's a little bit different. You have, you have doctors treating patients and performing services, but, and they might get paid by the MA plan based on the service they provide, or they might have a staff bottle HMO where they get a salary, but the MA plan is paid not based on the services performed, but based on the diagnosis codes. So they have an incentive to get doctors to put down all the diagnosis codes. They might even have an incentive to call in patients for checkups and give them a bunch of screening tests to see what diagnoses they might have that weren't, weren't known before. Um, that wouldn't be dishonest. In fact, you might even argue that's good preventive care. But either way, the same patient in an MA plan might end up with more diagnosis codes than the same patient in fee-for-service. Maybe that's because they're just coding correctly. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's because they're getting more preventive care. Perhaps it's also possible that the uh, that there's some dishonesty involved and they're putting down more codes that, and hoping no one will check. But in either case, the fact is, MA plan patients seem to have a higher, more diagnosis codes than fee-for-service patients. So because fee-for-service was there first, they tend to call this upcoding. Now, if compared to fee-for-service, because it, it's compared to fee-for-service. Sure. Now, 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 it, you could just easily look at it the other way and say, well. You know, the MA plans are doing preventive care. They're putting down all the diagnoses. And fee-for-service, they don't really get paid by the diagnosis, so maybe it's really fee-for-service downcoding. But either way, the fact is there's, a, there's in theory, a reason to believe there's a di- there are higher diagnoses in MA, and the, the facts seem to bear that out. Okay, so you say, though, that in your paper that uh, this phenomenon does not necessarily reflect any dishonesty on part of the provider's or MA plans, and that's the explanation you just provide. Right. Now, now the, the people who are against the MA plan tend to say, well, gee, if there's a difference in diagnosis, obviously the MA plans are just adding in diagnosis codes and figuring nobody's going to check. But it doesn't have to be that way. It could be that, hey, if your incentive is put down all the diagnosis codes that apply, that's what you're going to do. And in fee-for-service, you're not getting paid for the diagnosis code, so why bother you know, looking in your code book and writing down a new diagnosis code? That, that's beyond what you need to get paid. So leaving aside uh, the argument over upcoding, regardless, the CMS has now instituted this coding intensity adjustment. So what is that? All right, so uh, they wanted to, the, the objective here is of risk adjustment is to pay the MA plans appropriately for the care they give, not to pay them for differentials in coding based on the fact that MA and fee-for-service happen to have different payment rules and different, uh, you know, diff- different bureaucratic systems that encourage different types of coding. So what they did is they put in a, a coding intensity adjustment, which basically means they n- multiply everybody's risk score by a number smaller than one. They basically knock 3 or 4% off of everybody's risk score before they calculate payments. So um, 
this aligns the average risk score for Medicare Advantage patients with the average risk score for fee-for-service patients, but it does it in kind of a brute force across the board way. And it doesn't necessarily take into account that the level of coding differential, whether you want to call it upcoding or downcoding, might be different for different types of conditions. You know, it's quite possible that, you know, everybody's heart attack gets noticed, but not everybody's high cholesterol gets noticed. It might be that, you know, everybody's diabetes get noticed, but not everybody's asthma gets noticed. So it's, it's quite possible that this brute force approach is not really the best way to adjust for the coding differential. Obviously, the ideal way would be to get everybody to code everything in a consistent way. If that's not possible, then a more refined adjustment process might be better than just this across-the-board brute force uh, percentage discount off of risk scores. Okay, let's get back to a possible better approach in a second. But let's go to this other problem. And this was discussed in MedPAC's June 2014 report to the Congress. And... um, This is the issue that these HCC uh, model predicts costs that are higher than actual costs for bennies with very low costs and predicts costs that are lower than actual costs for beneficiaries who have very high costs. This is a problem in part because MA plans with a disproportionate share of high-cost enrollees may be disadvantaged, again, because they're paid lower than they should be, and then incent them, therefore, to encourage uh, these high-cost enrollees to disenroll because, again, they're underpaid for these beneficiaries. What can be done about this? MedPAC suggested uh, possibly capping or truncating MA costs for these patients, again, these high-cost patients, and then providing MA plans with some reinsurance. But leaving aside what MedPAC suggested, again, the inherent problem here is that Medicare, through the HCC uh, risk adjustment, again, uh, tends to pay um, lower than actual costs for beneficiaries with high costs and pay higher for beneficiaries with low costs. How do we address this? So it seems like what they're saying is patients with higher than average costs have costs higher than the average, and patients with lower than average costs have costs lower than the average. Correct. Is that right? Correct. Why is that a surprise? I'm asking you. <laughs> no, I mean, look, look you know, the, the point of the HCC model is to say, you know, the average patient with this condition costs how much? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean every patient with that condition costs that much. You know, not every patient, you know, so f- for example, a patient with high cholesterol on average is more likely to have a heart attack. So you get a group of 1,000 patients with high cholesterol getting have more heart attacks than a group of 1,000 patients without high cholesterol. That doesn't mean everybody's going to have the heart attack. Mm-hmm. So they're going to pay the average for everybody, and they're going to say, well, gee, you know, the people actually had heart attacks, we paid, le- we paid less than those high-cost people, and the people who didn't have heart attacks, we paid more. Well, of course, that's what, the system, that's what insurance is about. You know, if you think about how, think about how uh, homeowner's insurance works. You pay insurance, and uh, if your house burns down, you have a huge cost, and you paid the insurance plan a lot less than you, the high-cost person, cost that year mm-hmm. and in years when you your house didn't burn down you overpaid them your cost is zero so you overpaid them that's mm-hmm. not that's the way ins- that's what insurance is all about the whole point of insurance is you calculate an average mm-hmm. you make a payment based on that average and 
then, you know, in, in real life, some people cost more, some people cut less, and the average should be close to the average. You, if you did a good job... It should be a wash. The, it should be a wash. The average should be of what actually happens mm -hmm. should be pretty mm -hmm. close to the average that you use to base the payments. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not sure what the problem here is. I'm not even sure this is a problem. Um, if you want to uh, provide reinsurance, I think uh, MA plans are uh, able to buy reinsurance in, in the private market for reinsurance. There's companies in the reinsurance business. MA plans can take advantage of that the same as you know, fire insurance companies can, the same as any other insurance company can. In fact, the same as regular private sector non-Medicare insurance companies uh, take advantage of, and employers who provide health insurance all, all buy reinsurance. Um, I don't see why MedPAC is necessarily um, more capable of providing reinsurance than a, a professional reinsurance company. And the other thing is, uh, if you do that, you're going to have to go and measure MA costs for individual patients. Right now, there's no requirement to do that. And that allows MA plans to go and find efficiencies without somebody saying, hey, you found an efficiency, let's take it away from you. So I think that um, the, the cost to the uh, incentives in the MA program of having CMS go and measure individual patients' costs within MA is uh, is uh, substantial, and it will Im impose an additional record-keeping burden on staff model HMOs running MA plans that don't necessarily keep track of how much they spend on each patient. They pay everyone a salary. They give everybody the care they need. Could they figure out how much it costs to take care of an individual MA patient? Maybe. But it would be a lot of extra administrative costs and a lot of extra work, and it wouldn't necessarily have any benefit. So uh, I think this is a non-problem uh, for which this non-solution could make things worse. A solution worse. in search of a problem. Right. Uh, it's been much discussed, and I'll, I'll, I'll grant your argument relative to uh, whether it is uh, an actual problem. But this, let me ask you on the follow-up, and that is the concern that uh, MA plans uh, might disenroll or work in some way to encourage disenrollment of these high-cost beneficiaries. Do, is there any evidence of that? There was before, before the uh, HCC risk adjustment was implemented. There was definitely, there was disenrollment going on. Whether that was because MA plans were encouraging it or not it is not something that, that we can go out and check. Uh, they certainly weren't allowed to turn people down. They certainly weren't allowed to throw people out. Um, might they have put in a uh, system that has, you know, higher, say, co-pays for high-level users? Yeah, they could have done that, and that would have encouraged people to disenroll themselves once they get sick, as I said before. And there was certainly some indication that people who were disenrolling and going into fee-for-service had higher fee-for-service costs than the average fee-for-service person who wasn't disenrolling. Now, what you could do to find that out is you could look at... Um, there's different reasons why people disenroll from an MA plan. You know, some people might not like the plan. Uh, some people's conditions may change, and they might disenroll because they got sick. Also, some people might be forcibly disenrolled because the MA plan is no longer offered in their area. And that could happen for a variety of reasons that have nothing to do with an individual mm -hmm. patient. So what you could do to look at that is look at the fee-for-service costs of people who voluntarily disenrolled and compare those to fee-for-service costs of people whose MA plan disappeared and people maybe who living in a place where all the MA plans disappeared. This has happened in a few locations over the last few years. And we could look at that and we could see if there's a systematic difference in fee-for-service 
utilization between the people who disenrolled voluntarily and the people who didn't, who disenrolled involuntarily, if they're about the same, I would say there's probably not much going on in terms of MA plans encouraging disenrollment. If they're different, then we could look deeper and see if there is any, uh, any uh, evidence to confirm that. So for my last question, again referring to your American Action Forum article, you did conclude with this quote-unquote better approach. You say a solution, um, a solution would be to actually measure the differences in coding intensity and did suggest that already. So can you tell me more about that? Right, so um, we, we ha one thing you could do is look at, a, look at how diagnoses change when people disenroll hmm. and see if, uh, see if the, the diagnoses drop off. You know, now, for some things, are going to drop off because of, cause some diagnoses reflect something that happens and then goes away. You know, you, you have some sort of an incident and it's treated and it's gone. You break your leg, there's a diagnosis, go to that. They put the cast on, it's not there the next year. And, and some things are chronic and, you know, generally don't go away. Um, you know, high cholesterol, if you're prescribed a high cholesterol medication, that diagnosis is still going to be on there even if your cholesterol goes down to normal because we have to justify giving you the medication. Mm -hmm. So there, there are some things that are... So we have to be careful doing this, but if you find out that people who disenroll tend to lose diagnoses that you wouldn't expect them to lose, that would be an indication that, there, that it's an issue of upcoding, downcoding. And that might happen differentially for different types of, of condition categories. And maybe we could make an upcoding, downcoding adjustment that's particular to specific categories of conditions rather than just one adjustment that's across the board. This meat cleaver approach. Yeah, right. Because, right. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like they say, you know, half of all healthcare is wasted. So we don't you, know which half. We don't know which half. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean you should, you should randomly cancel half the appointments and half the surgeries or, or you know, cut everybody's utilization by 50%. You might cut the wrong 50% and then still half of it's wasted. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's that kind of situation, and, and we have a we, we we could do a much better job, I think, if we looked at the behavior, the tr people transitioning in and out, and especially if it turns out that there's not evidence that they're transitioning in and out because of you know because they're getting sick and becoming high cost neurologies. Maybe they're transitioning out for other reasons. Oh, by the way, I should add to my la to uh, what I said earlier that the existing evidence seems to indicate that disenrollment due to becoming a high-cost patient, dropped off significantly after they implemented condition category risk adjustment instead of just age and gender risk adjustment. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think that, that uh, chances are we're not getting high-cost enrollees disenrolling because they became high-cost enrollees. However, when we try to adjust for the different differential coding, we could probably do better than just this one meat cleaver approach, like you said. Um, and uh, that, that would be one way to do it. I'm open to suggestions. There might be other better ways to do it, but basically uh, compared, to, um, compared to the meat cleaver approach, just about anything would be better than that. Well, thank you, Robert. Sadly, we're already at our time boundary, but this was a good uh, preliminary discussion, at least, on risk adjustment. I'd like to schedule a reprise to talk about how CMS varies its approach to risk adjustment across okay. programs. So at another time, we'll discuss that. So with that, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks very much. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.